0: can go ahead and have a seat. And as you're doing that, I want to just uh, re-emphasize something that's taking place next week. Uh, Next week we'll have Fifth Family Sunday, so it'll be a little more special than this week. We'll have all of our children in with us, and so it'll be a little bit more rowdy, but we'll enjoy having the opportunity to worship with them. We're glad to to do that and let them see uh, and and be a part of the body of Christ coming together. Uh, One of the things that you may already know, but if you don't, I'll I'll let you know, Um, in our children's department, uh, in Hubtown Kids, we're actually having our kids go through the Jesus Storybook Bible. So our, ki- our, our leaders are teaching them through that, and it's been a really productive time, I can tell, for my own children. It's been awesome as we have conversations from time to time about what they've been learning in their class. So that's exciting. Uh, next week, what's really cool is I'll actually be bringing a sermon um, that the kids will be very familiar with, because I'm going to actually be, in a sense, preaching from the Jesus Storybook Bible next week as the, as the families get together. And so this week will be a, a part one of Daniel, next week we'll do part two, and so it'll be, be, be pretty cool. Um, also, I just want to draw your attention in that to the resource table. If you're um, new around here, or if this is, uh, you've been here for a couple weeks, you might look back there and see, hey, there's a table back there that's got some Bibles and some other books. I just want to put a plug in and say, uh, those books back there, we're not trying to make any money. But as Pastor Tim and I consider and pray about how do we shepherd this flock, how do we equip um, this body here, we considered, hey, these are some great books that have been helpful in our lives as we lead uh, this church, as we lead our families. And those books have been very helpful, and so we want to make them available to you. There's, they're half price uh, from what the MSRP is, so check those out and uh, definitely um, get something there. There's something back there, I'm sure, for you that can be a help to you. Um, specifically, there's a Jesus Storybook Bible back there, and so if you uh, wanted to check that out, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool book. Um, anyway, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever considered what it would be like to live in a country where it was illegal to be a Christian, where it was illegal to be a Christian? Have You ever considered that? Some of you may even be thinking, well, I've actually lived in a country where it was, in a sense, illegal to be a Christian. Illegal to hold to that historic, traditional Christian values, to the truths that are in Scriptures. Earlier this year, Al Mohler he gave us a report on the briefing concerning this very thing. Two hundred and fifty Dutch Christian leaders, as pastors and other leaders, had signed the Nashville Statement, which is a statement that affirms the biblical understanding of gender, sexuality, and marriage. It speaks in clear biblical terms to many of the most controversial issues that the church faces today. The response from so many around the world and even from the government of the Netherlands is concerning. Anyone who holds to traditional biblical understanding of human sexuality, that understanding of human sexuality and gender that has marked the Christian church for over 2,000 years is now simply out of bounds in contemporary society. Consider that. What may be most shocking to you, or at least to me, is this, that the Dutch government prosecution service is considering whether the very signing and publication of the Nashville Statement is actually a violation worthy of criminal prosecution. 250 church leaders with the possibility of being prosecuted for not being hateful doing anything other than just believing and stating that they believe what the Bible teaches to be true. Criminalized for believing the Bible. It's shocking in this day and age that we live in. And we may think it it may never come to the United States, and I'm not here today to to do fear-mongering or anything like that. But the truth of the matter is, we live in a world that is becoming less and less receptive to the gospel and less and less welcoming to people who believe other than what they believe it wasn't the three hebrew men they didn't have to work too hard to imagine what it would be like to live in a country where it was illegal to believe what the lord said this week we read about uh, in in the book of daniel we read about three young hebrews and uh, they were living in Babylon. They had uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed, sacked, and, ex- uh, and all of and thousands had been killed. And those who had survived were actually taken into exile, into captivity, dispersed all throughout the the, uh, the nation of Babylon, all around the known world. And three of those guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they found themselves in a in a caravan walking towards Babylon. They were given new names: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You probably know those names a little bit better. They were also given new roles in Babylon as well. Not long after they had been there, God began to work just miraculously in their lives and had given them favor. And there in a, in a foreign nation with new names and new jobs, the story picks up. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar had built a uh, giant statue made of gold, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and he placed it in the plains of Dura. As a matter of fact, still today there's a rectangular mound there that's uh, that's built that's still seen in the center of that plain. Likely it's the very uh, base of this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. He called for all the rulers and all the leaders throughout all of the kingdom they were called to that very valley with specific instructions and commands for them to not only fall down before the image when the music began to play, but also to worship it. It wasn't just a posture. It was also a matter of the heart that that King Nebuchadnezzar was demanding. No doubt it's a political and and religious move as he seeks to unite and unify the nation of Babylon. He's taking advantage of religion and he's forcing them to worship. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're faced with a a pretty interesting situation. Would they follow the king's command and defend their lives, their blessings, their families, their positions, and then ask God for forgiveness? Or would they obey his word to never worship or to never have any other god or idol before before them? Daniel chapter 3, there at the end Toward the middle anyway. It tells us that they chose the latter. I'm happy to hear that this morning. But as a result, they were brought before the king. And and even though he was very angry with them, old Nebi gave him a chance. He gave him one more shot. I heard this is what happened. Let's give it one more shot. He says, but if you don't worship, you'll be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. He says, who's the God? Who's the God I can that can rescue you and deliver you out of my hands. So that's a little bit of the background. I'm going to jump with you into the text. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn there to Daniel chapter 3, and we'll read 8 to 18. If you don't, it's going to be available on the screen for you this morning. The Bible says in verse number 8, Therefore, at, the time, at, that, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree. And every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a fiery burning furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay you no attention they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have not served my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we... We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. May God bless the reading of his word Would you pray with me this morning. God, we pray that through your word this morning that you would encourage the believer this morning who is discouraged. God, to the man or woman this morning who is prideful, Father, would you bring them low? God, to the broken, would you heal them? Spirit, through your word, would you enable us to see what it is that we're to put off in our lives and what we are to put on. Spirit, would you strengthen us as your people that we would stand uprightly in this day, that we would not bow, that we would not worship any other God but Yahweh. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what would you have said if you were in that situation? What would you have done? Lots of opportunities, lots of arguments as to which way you could have spun it or what you could have done. And sadly, it may not be a rhetorical question for very long. It could very well be that we could face something similar to what is taking place in the Netherlands. The threat could be real here. And who's to say that we won't actually regress to the place where there's a fiery furnace and we're given the opportunity to deny our faith? This account that God providentially, divinely records for us, and for God's people, it says something. And So as we look at this, we ask the question, why would God record this story? It's a wonderful story, no doubt. But why would God give this story to his people Why would it be recorded? Many, many things happened. Why why do we have this? I I come to the conclusion that I I believe that God has given this passage, really the book of Daniel, but specifically chapter 3, to his people down through the centuries as a reminder that God requires obedience to him, whatever the consequences. That God demands obedience. Obedience to him no matter the consequences. And at the same time, it affirms God's sovereignty over creation and his presence with his people. It reminds his people that we have to obey. He demands it. And he's also sovereign and he's also with his people. So how encouraging for us today as we see the, the cultural tide changing Look at this passage here and we're reminded of these truths. I think that we'll walk away with hope. Encouraged, convicted, yes. With hope for the future. Imagine if you were a Hebrew in this day and age, living in exile, away from your very land that you grew up in, the land that's so intrinsically a part of who you are as a person. And there you are in a foreign land worshiping all around you with foreign gods. What kind of an encouragement would this come be when it comes to them. When the Hebrews hear that God is with His people in exile, that God is with His people when they face a fiery furnace, as a reminder that God expects obedience even in those places, even in those difficult places. I want to walk you back through this passage this morning. And as, as we do, I want to give you some handles and just see some, some markers as we walk through. We'll see three different uh, phases or steps this morning. The first is we'll see the accusation. We'll see the accusation of the Chaldeans against the Hebrews. We'll move from the accusation into the advice. There's advice that has been offered. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. We'll see. But there's been some advice that's been given to the Hebrews. And lastly, we'll see the answer. The answer of the Hebrews. So we have the accusation, the advice... And then the answer. So first let's jump into the accusation. These, these brothers, they stuck out like a sore thumb. Can you imagine thousands of people gathered in that valley? As you crest the top of the, the mountain and you come down into the valley and you see it, it's just this huge expanse full of people, almost like a circus or a fair going on. There's probably music, there's food, there's all types of smells, good and bad. People dressed up. And there in the center, there's a large, very, very tall, golden statue. As you walk in there, you get, you get settled. The ceremony begins. The music starts and everybody, everybody bows. Except for these three young men. Imagine, they stuck out like sore thumbs. It wasn't difficult to spot these guys, and, and yet not everybody did spot them. They took their stand, and they definitely went noticed. Daniel 1 tells us that, that God gave these guys learning and skill in all wisdom and literature, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That naturally gave these guys uh, an edge in this climate. And that political scene. And then in chapter 2, the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, are promoted to high status. Foreigners. They're in Babylon. Promoted. And as as things go, jealousy becomes an issue. Hatred, jealousy, racism, all of these things combined. It's a perfect storm. And so as they take a stand, when everybody kneels, they become a target. No doubt that will be the testimony of many of us. We stand for what is right. We do our best to walk in the precepts of the Lord and to please Him. No doubt we'll stand out as well. Persecution will come our way. It did for these guys. Not everybody noticed, but some did. And the ones who hated them, they're the ones that spoke up. And they brought them before the king and they accused them before the king, and not in a kind way, not in a, um, well, you know, well, we don't really want to tell on them, though they came with their teeth bared, ready to destroy them. What did they say? There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the promise, uh, province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay you no attention. They pay you no attention, and they do not serve your God's Worship the golden image that you have set up. There are a couple things going on in that accusation. The first is that they say they do not pay you attention. They're saying something very, very... They're they're accusing them of being very disrespectful to King Nebuchadnezzar. And honestly, it's not a true statement. They do pay attention. They do pay respect to the office. They do their jobs well. We have no reason to believe that they don't. They are lighting a candle, so to speak... For the Lord, upstanding citizens. and that, that part was not true. But there was a part that was true. A part of that accusation, it was the second and third part. No, they did not worship the pagan idols, including the new one. They had defied the law of the land thereby. These Hebrews, they refused it. They must have known they'd been discovered. And yet they obeyed God rather than man. truth is, I don't think any of us will be able to get through this life in with a different story. If we truly stand for the Lord, if we truly walk in his precepts, no doubt we, you will be noticed as well. And not only will you be noticed, but in some form or fashion, you will experience persecution. That's a, that's a promise that we've been given from our Lord, that we will. We will suffer. Now, maybe not to the same degree, maybe not in the exact same way, maybe not in a foreign land. The promise is there for us that we will suffer. So while you may think this has no application for you, you don't live in, live in the Netherlands and you don't live near Babylon, the fact of the matter is you need to make a decision this morning. What will, what, will you, what will your response be when the accusations come your way? What will your plan be? What will your play be? Let me ask you a question, though, on another, uh, another front, though. If it were illegal to be a Christian, could you be convicted of that? It wasn't difficult for those Chaldeans to spot the three men standing. Because when everybody should have been kneeling and bowing, they were standing. They stuck out. So, would you stick out? Do you even now? Now, this is not a call for you to begin to act odd. I'm not asking you to start wearing jean jumpers, make sure your hair is off your ears, or to not listen to Christian radio, or to listen to Christian radio, or to homeschool your kids. I'm not asking for those things. But in the brass tacks, when you get down to it, could you be convicted of being a Christian in the way that you love the brethren? The way that you love this world in certain ways and the way that you don't love the world in certain ways. Could you be convicted? We will stand out as Christians. We are a peculiar people because we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. Our, 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 our tongues are not knives to cut down and tear down our fellow neighbors' So naturally, we walk the path that Jesus walked. We stand out and we look odd. And it doesn't matter whether it's, it's held by common public opinion or not. Christian, we must always take the biblical road. We must always take that and never compromise. And when we do that, we will stick out. We will be noticed. And we don't strive for that. We don't look for fights. We don't look to be noticed in certain ways to draw attention to ourselves, but as we obey our Lord and Savior, no doubt we will stick out and we will face persecution. It's coming. And in some ways, it's even here now. As you experience it, Christian, I want to encourage you not to compromise. Not to compromise. We live in a day and age where disagreeing with another is considered the same as hatred. It's a misunderstanding and perhaps it's even an intentional one. A moment ago we talked about the Nashville Statement and this is a a document that, as I stated, it it articulates the biblical position on so many of the issues that we face today. It's not a message of hate. In fact, it's clearly stated that that all of us need grace. That all of us need the mercy of Christ. That all of us struggle with sin from the leadest to the the greatest. And yet to. To disagree with somebody in this day and age is the same as hatred. And so what position will you take? When the time comes to bow or stand, will you be found standing or will you cave? Will you allow yourself to be misunderstood? It's one of the worst things I, I, I fear, that somebody would misunderstand me. My position, the Lord has given me to stand and I, I would hate for somebody to think that that's hatred. And that's the day and age we live in. Anytime that we speak truth, we're accused of being bigots. And while there's lots of room for that, in the sense that many people in this day and age are bigots and do hate, and yet God's not called us to that, but he has called us to walk in the light and to walk in truth and to speak that. So will you shrink back in the shadows when the time has come? When the music plays, so to speak, will you kneel or will you stand? Brothers and sisters, the gospel that we carry in our hearts and on our tongues is a message of hope and of goodness, but it is first a bad message. It's first bad news. It accuses people of sin, both the young and the old, the moral, so to speak, and the immoral, the gay and the straight. The gospel is first offensive to all. There's not one of us that walks this earth that is not affronted or should be affronted with the gospel. He accuses each and every one of us. And know this, you cannot share the gospel fully unless you share the bad news. The gospel cannot be shared unless you point to sin. There's not a need for a savior. There's no need for good news unless there's damnation. It's the facts, brother and sister. And so we cannot shrink back from the truth. We must be careful not to, to ride our particular hobby horses or hate the things that we hate. We can't do that. We must hate the things that God hates, which includes our sin, secret, acceptable, whatever it is. We must hate it as well. The gospel is an affront. It's an attack on us individually and on every single person that walks the face of this earth. It's first bad news, and then it's good news. If we repent... If we'll place our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that He did on the cross, then we can receive forgiveness. That's good news. So don't shrink back, brother, sister, don't shrink back from sharing the whole counsel of God and all of the gospel. These brothers and these brothers, they're found out and they're ushered to the front, they're brought before this great king. And just imagine. Some of you, you struggle with any type of attention being brought to you in any certain way. If somebody were to say your name in public, you'd freak out. Right? Imagine with thousands of people gathered, being ushered to the stage, brought up in front of everybody, given the opportunity to recant, so to speak, given another chance. To prove that you really can be subordinate. You really can buy in to this political, religious move and worship this idol. Imagine the stress and the anxiety as they're ushered forward. The king looks at them and he says, is it true? Is it true? This is what you've done. What would your answer be? If that were you. That culture was replaced with our culture, their their situation with our situation. No, it's nowhere near as dangerous, but could it be said of you that it is true? Could you answer the king when he asks, Is it true? You say, Yes. Could you do that? What if the Lord were to ask you that? Is it true that you stood, that you obeyed, no matter the circumstance, no matter the consequence? Is it true? I want, I want to so badly at the end of my life as I stand before the king to say, it is true. For him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And may Hagerstown Church be filled with saints at that day when we stand before our Lord, when we say, maybe even in unison, it is true. Everything that's been said, all the, all the things, we, we, we shunned it all, Father. We obeyed your commands. We walked in your precepts. Because you put your your law in our hearts and you gave us your spirit, I long for that to be true of me, and that I could stand before him and say, "It is true." If you're here this morning and you say that's not that's not me, if the Lord were to ask me this morning, "Is it true?" I would not be able to say that. Charles Spurgeon had a quote, and I want to give it to you this morning. It's one of his out of one of his sermons. He says this of this passage, he says, If standing before the heart-searching God at this time, you cannot say it is true, how should you act? If you cannot say that you, can, that you take Christ's cross and are willing to follow him at all hazards, then hearken to me and hear the truth. Do not make a profession at all. Do not talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper, nor of joining a church, nor of being a Christian. For if you do... You will lie against your own soul. If it be not true that your repentance is towards the world's idols, do not profess that it is so. It is unnecessary that man should profess to be what he is not. It is a sin of supererogation, superfluity of naughtiness. If you cannot be true to Christ, if your coward heart is recreant to your Lord, do not profess to be his disciple. I beseech you. He that is married to the world or flint-hearted had better return to his house for he is of no service in this war. Better return to his house. He is of no service in this war. Brothers and sisters, may this be true of us this morning. That we would stand before our king and say, yes, it is true. That in the face of our accusers that we would say, yes, it's true, not with shame, and not with fear, but boldly in faith. Verse 14, Is it true, O Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the backpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? They were accused. were brought before the king. And now the king offers them advice. Bow. Fear me. Worship. Cave. Follow suit. Everybody's doing it. Do you want to die? Do you want to lose your life? That's his advice. Submit. It's the same instructions that we receive today. Submit, cave, bow. Turn away from that foolishness, from that traditional mindset. It's archaic. It's not true. It's bigoted. It's hateful. We're given the same advice. Society at large, it pressures you this morning to give in, to give up. The age of information and the internet and of social media, you can be outed and labeled quickly. Your reputation destroyed. Considered a bigot. It can happen quickly. Drop of a hat in a day. And that wicked king, he advises the Hebrews to worship the idol or to be burned alive. It says here that they would be thrown in with their clothes and everything on. Immediately, just thrown in. No second chance, no third chance over. Today, we're not faced with being burned alive, but we are faced with being marginalized. We're faced with being ostracized. Do you feel the temptation? Do you see the draw in your own life to cave or to bow to, to this age's idols? It's not just the sexual moral revolution. We're tempted on all fronts, in all areas, both big and small, obvious and conspicuous in the locker room, in the boardroom, in coffee shops, and at the ball field, we face the temptation to give in to the culture, cultural permeation of gossip and language that cuts down and destroys and does not build up. And if you look around, everybody's doing it. Everywhere. We feel the pressure to, to be pulled into that and to, do, and to contribute and not to stick out. And as everybody else bows to the God of themselves and of hatred and of backbiting, Maybe you're tempted to, con- to concede and give in as well so that you don't stick out, so that you don't look like a sore thumb. And maybe it's not speech for you. Maybe it's not communication. Maybe it's not this moral revolution. Maybe it's something different. But what is it? What are you tempted to bow to? What area of your life would be easier if the word didn't matter? If God's word was not a thing and didn't govern your life, what area would be easier? Identify that this morning. I think it would be helpful even now. Write it down somewhere. Put it in your notes. What area, where are you tempted to bow and to cave? We say it around here often, the word matters here. We mean the the word of God, the, the Bible, the sufficient authoritative scripture that has been handed down to us from God himself. We say it matters here. It's not just something we hang. It's not, a, it's not an addition. It's not an ornament in our lives. It doesn't just a, adorn our coffee tables. No, it, it governs our life. It's, it, it's everything that we need. And so in what area of your life are you tempted to maybe bow to both? Or are you struggling? Brother, sister, confess that. Admit that to, to somebody and that you're in community with. It, to some, to some, uh, someone in the church. There's a serious danger here. One of God's graces that I I don't think that we should quickly overlook is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were given the opportunity to stand together. Now that, that may not always be the case. Oftentimes we're isolated just because of the context that we're in and there's not much way around that what grace it is that God would give to these young men as they would stand together. Ultimately, they would face the furnace together. Church, remember what God has given to us in this body. We would stand together. We would keep each other warm, so to speak, in a cold, cold world. And thereby receive strength and courage through the grace of the church. So they had the accusation, they were given some advice. Bow! Submit! They were on stage. They were put on blast. They were mocked. They were told that they, it was hopeless. No no God, no, no God could rescue you out of my hand, Nebuchadnezzar said. And then the answer. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered, We will not bow. We will not cave. Not out of pride. Not out of arrogance or national uh, arrogance. No, it had nothing to do with that. They took their stand. They said they would not bow because it was against the law of God. He had commanded them otherwise, and they were going to hold to it. And they could have said, there, there's, there's nothing to gain by resisting why should we? Wouldn't we be better service to the king, to Yahweh, if we were living? They could have said that. It's easy to say that. We, we have to live, but in reality, we all must die. So why not die for this? We have to give our lives to something. Why not give your life for the word of God? That, they didn't use that excuse. They could have said, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. Who cares? doesn't even matter. We're in Rome. Do as the Romans do. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. They could have said that. They could have taken that route, but they didn't. Because they know that God is not limited by some man-made jurisdiction. but That God is sovereign over all. They found their conviction and they found their confidence in the fact that God is sovereign over everything. They can never escape His rule. They could have said, "We'll lose our jobs. We'll lose our standard of living. We life won't be like it has been. How could I raise my kids in this? What about them?" They didn't say that anyway. They could have said, "We could just hide. Nobody would even notice." They didn't take that route either. They could have said, "We're not being called to renounce God." We're not being called to say anything about Yahweh. They could have compartmentalized their, their worship. They could have said, we're, we're not bowing down to the idol, but we're actually just bowing down in respect for the king. And when, and when the music starts, we're just reminiscing or thinking. and We went some, somewhere else in our minds. Excuses like that, they're common. Yet they couldn't do it. They couldn't bend. Their hearts wouldn't allow them. In our day, many do love Jesus and they think highly of him, but they also have these other things that they bow down and worship to. God says he will not have that. He won't take a a divided heart. That's not worship. It's false. It's fake. It's not true. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't love the world. We can't. We can't serve two masters. The commands are clear. They had the opportunity to say, it's only once. It's not for very long. They only want us to do this for 10 minutes or so. It's just for the king. Stupid to throw our lives away and all of our potential just for this one moment. God will understand. And yet they recognize that 10 minutes could change the, the course of eternity. They wouldn't give in. It wasn't in their hearts. They might have said, this is more than can be expected of us. God will understand just this once. It's more than we can bear. While it's true that God does understand our, our struggle and our temptations in this life, he does not make an allowance for it. God he'll never wink at sin. He'll never overlook it. We need to not look farther than the cross to see that he does not shirk off the seriousness of sin. These young boys were careful to say, or not careful to say, we're not going to bow down. There's nothing that you could say. There's nothing that you could change our minds. We're not going to compromise. Whatever the consequences are, we'll take them. They knew something, I believe, that we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. If you're taking notes, I'll share these with you quickly. The first is this, that God guides us by principle rather than by practical. That God guides us by principle rather than the practical. It's not to say there's no room for for practical, for being pragmatic in some areas of our lives. The fact of the matter is, God had clearly... Given them instructions, and they were to be guided by this principle. So there's truth in this world that transcends our experience. There's truth in this world that transcends our preferences, and it's greater than our whims and our shifting desires. The word matters here. It doesn't matter. God doesn't make an exception for you because of your particular situation. He expects us to operate into, by the principles and not by what's practical for us. I love this. Imagine as they're walking to the front, as they're walking to that very place, maybe even to the, the fiery furnace, as they're being walked there, they're given that opportunity imagine them talking amongst themselves. I'll tell you what they're not saying. They're not saying, okay, all right, guys. If, if he offers this, then we'll say this. We'll, we'll go ahead and not, we won't bow. But if he says this, if he doesn't offer us a pardon in some way, but if he demands our lives, then we'll go ahead and go, uh, we'll say we'll, we'll recant. And we won't worship, or we will. If, if This, and having some kind of a signal, stamp your foot three times, clear your throat, whatever. No, when they came to the stage, they knew what their answer was. They weren't going to game plan. Why? Because it didn't matter what Nebuchadnezzar said. It didn't matter what the torture would look like, whether the death would be quick or slow. It didn't matter. They had determined in their hearts together that they would not bow. That they would be guided by the principle. So often, I think Christians are guided by the so that idea more than the because of. Let me flesh that out. Oftentimes we make decisions in our lives and we say, I'm going to do this so that this will happen. I don't know about you, but I thought, I'm going to go to a Christian college so that I can meet a Christian wife, right? Not that there's a principle on what school you go to necessarily that God has handed down. But I wanted to manipulate the circumstances that I would find myself in and say, I'll do this so that this will happen. Oftentimes we're guilty of that as Christians. I'll read my Bible so that this will happen. I'll go to church so that this will happen. And you might think that there's no harm in that, but the flip side becomes dangerous. You see, the reasoning, if the reasoning is what what the outcome will be so that this will happen, if that's what you're focused on, and not on the principle that God gives us, and you began to steer in a manipulating way, And the principle is then set to the side. The only reason you were doing that good deed is because this was going to happen. And when that carrot is removed, and now it's shifted over here, now you do the opposite. Because you're pragmatic. You're practical. You're manipulating. God calls Christians to, to operate under the because of. We do this because God told us to. We don't do that because God told us not to do that. And this is what God calls us to as Christians. God guides us by principles, regardless of, what, of our circumstances, regardless of what's practical, regardless of what makes sense in the here and now. His principles transcend all of that. The parable of the talents come, come to mind. These people are given this, this money to invest. What do they do? Some invest and some don't. And to some, it seemed appropriate to hide their talents, to hide their, their money, and to not invest it. At the end of the day, they were wicked, they were rejected. God call, has called us to something this morning. We must be guided by principle. And not be guilty of manipulation. So that's one principle. God guides us by the principle rather than the practical. But another one is this. that God expects our obedience regardless of the circumstance. And really it's just another angle. Of, another way to say that same one that we already saw just a moment ago. God demanded complete obedience. He had expressly, very clearly forbidden them to worship any other God. They didn't make any excuses. They obeyed. But they weren't just assuming that God would rescue them. Remember, that whole so that, because of. If you were to be found in that same situation, you might say, I'm going to go ahead and bow so that I can do this. So that I can live. So that I can continue to serve God or whatever it is. And yet, these boys were saying, no, 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 we're going we're to... Do this because God has said this. They were submitting. They were obeying. It was more than just life. They were prepared to give up their life. They said, if God chooses not to deliver us, we're still not going to disobey. It didn't matter. They were going to do it either way. My prayer for us this morning, for our church, is that God would give us men and women here in Hagerstown, that would be guided by principle and not by the practical, that we would be dedicated to full obedience to the Word of God and not be motivated by their own glory, but by God's glory, not be motivated out of fear, but of the fear of the Lord. We'd be Christians who are proactive and not reactive. We'd be Christians that would not bow. And these young men, they didn't bow. You likely know the rest of the story. They didn't bow. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. There's something there for you this morning that God has not promised you to not experience the fiery furnace. He's not. It's just as miraculous for God to spare them in the furnace as to spare them from the furnace. And yet God did not spare them from the furnace. They experienced it. They walked through pain. They walked through suffering. And I'm not saying they were burned up, but it's a picture for us this morning. That God is not promising to spare us from pain or to spare us from the, the effects of us standing when all around bow. There's a danger here, just like in the story of Jonah, that we can become distracted by the miracle that takes place and that we misapply the emphasis. The point is that God, it's, it's not that God will spare you. You'll never have pain and suffering. It's not about the persecution being shielded from you by God and that you won't experience loss. That's not the point. The point is this, and it has been throughout all of history, that God is with his people. That God is with his people. We're not promised safety. We're not promised to avoid danger. We are, in fact, promised to experience danger. But through it all, Jesus is. Is with his people. This is a great place to land the plane. This is a beautiful part. Look at verse 21. We didn't read it yet. Verse 21 says this Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and other garments. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. When King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast in three men bound into the fire? And they answered and they said to king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. What a beautiful picture here. They're not wounded at all. They're not, they're not hurt. You see, they weren't rescued from the fiery furnace. They were in the furnace. And yet in the furnace, they were delivered. And so what they said was true. What they said of Yahweh was true. It came to pass. They were delivered. God did deliver them. And what a beautiful thing here. The fourth. Who is it? It's like the son of the gods. Daniel 2 verse 11. It gives us a clue to who this is. And this is a beautiful picture. It's awesome that that, that Daniel chapter 2 verse 11 is included. The statement is made. The thing that the king asks is difficult regarding interpreting the dreams, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The unbelieving pagan Babylonians said the dwelling of of, of the gods is not with flesh. And yet in the very next chapter, there they are walking about. There's not three in the furnace, there's four. Is this not Christ? Christ? Is this not Emmanuel. Come down with his people. And that promise has been given. As I think, as I think about this, this fact here that the, the, the dwelling of the gods is not with flesh. I, 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 my mind thinks with gifts sometimes. I don't know if you're like that, but my mind does. And I, when, I read, when I read that this week, I just imagine Trump leaning into the microphone saying, Wrong. No, it is. God would send his own son. The prophecy we read this morning, Isaiah 43, 1-3 in the, in the scripture reading. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, Your Savior. So church, this morning, in our exile, when we face our furnace, in our sexual moral revolution as culture is permeating, and our temptation as individuals, know this, that he is with us. We have no need to fear. When we pass through the waters, he is with us. When we go through the fire, we won't be consumed. Nebuchadnezzar, he's called to everyone there to that valley For this great unveiling, he thinks that everyone's going to see how great of a man that he is, how great of a God even that he is. I believe that that very statue is a representation of Nebuchadnezzar. There's no God mentioned, specifically. I think it's him. He's the God. As he calls everybody to that valley to worship this false God, him, for them to see his glory to hear his music, to see his statue in his valley. And what happens? The show is stolen by the fourth man in the furnace who spares the lives of these young men who obey him and delivers them out of the furnace. I want to leave you with one final thought as we close. We experience the presence of God during our suffering and during our persecution at a heightened level. I want you to imagine this. Had these young Hebrews not obeyed, had they not stood when everybody else was bowing, they, they would not have experienced the presence of the pre incarnate Christ there in that furnace. Think about that. I don't want to, there's so many different ways that we could go, and I don't want to get into the weeds theologically here, but the truth is this. That When we experience persecution and when we experience suffering, we have a unique opportunity to experience the very presence of God in a way that others cannot. The Bible says that he is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. So church, as you are faced with the opportunity to either bow or to stay standing, I want to encourage you not to forget that God is sovereign. That Our God, whom we serve, is sovereign. And he can deliver us. And he will ultimately deliver us. But if he doesn't deliver you from the furnace, if he doesn't deliver you from whatever persecution you face, stay standing. Don't kneel. Because God requires obedience of us, whatever the consequences. Church, don't bow don't be afraid, and remember that God is with us. We're in our be- "Prepare the Way" series. The preparation is being made continually, and we see it even more clearer now. And pictured, the coming of Christ—very God in the flesh—will soon tabernacle with His people. People, prepare the way. Would you pray with me, God? We come to you this morning. Just reminded of the holiness that is you. The holiness of your being. Holy and perfect injustice, not overlooking sin, demanding obedience, demanding righteousness. We come before you and we, knowing that we only have righteousness that comes from you. Father, if there's somebody here this morning that cannot say, that does not. Have that righteousness of Christ. They fall before you this morning, confess their sin and repent, trusting Jesus' work on the cross. Spirit, would you draw them to do that this morning? God, to the saint this morning, that sitting in a seat, listening to your word preached this morning, who struggles to, to believe that they have the strength to stand when everybody else is kneeling, God, would you encourage them? Would you help them to know and to see that you are with us? You've promised that. That you're sovereign over all and that you'll never leave us. In the face of danger, in the face of deep water, in the face of hot, hot fire. That you're with us. That you ultimately will deliver us. God, we thank you for these truths. God, you sustain us. We trust that. We worship you in that. make much of you this morning. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and worship?